Well, we are in a series on the book of Acts looking at how we as a people of God are to bring the gospel to the city in which he's placed us. We are in this amazing city called Los Angeles. And in order to bring the gospel to our city, we have to understand the context in which we are to bring the gospel. We are to live out our faith. And as you know, Los Angeles is a city like some other cities that has a dramatically different spiritual landscape than what it had even a few years ago. Christianity in this context is living, as some people say, a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian society. Where in our city, Christianity has moved from the majority to the minority, from the center of public conversation to the fringe, and from being respected to disrespected. These are the cultural trends that we all navigate and live in. That LA is more and more a pluralistic society with a syncretistic way of spirituality, which simply means this, that it's a pick and mix religious spirituality, where people go, kind of, we like our religion like we like our salads at Greens Up down the road, where there's a smorgasbord of options, and you know, you'll take a lettuce, and I'll have some crudons, I'll have some grapes, I'll have some cheese, or whatever it is, you throw it all together. Same thing with our religion, you know, I'll take a bit of Jesus, a bit of Buddha, um, a bit of Zen, sprinkle some crystals on top, or whatever it may be. That is my preferred form of spirituality. This is the context in which we live. And the question we have today is, how do we thrive in this context? How do we live out our faith in this cultural moment and in this cultural context? In particular, how do we be confident and have courage not to shrink back? Well, we see in Acts chapter 4 that Jesus sent out his disciples in a similarly pluralistic context. It was not easier for them than it is for us today. Jesus sent them out into the first century to make disciples of all nations with a whole range of different worldviews, religions, and philosophies. There's the Judaistic faith. There were the plethora of Roman gods and Greek gods and uh, Greek philosophies, Stoicism, and, and others. The Roman rule was that you had to worship Caesar as divine, and so there's all sorts of things going on. They didn't have it easier than we had. And yet in the context of this passage, we'll see that they had confidence and courage to live out their faith. So let's look in Acts chapter 4, how we today can be confident and courageous in our faith in our city. We'll begin with verse 1 in Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame 
and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And it's by him that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not see, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who, has, who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. As we look at this passage, we see their confidence and courage in a pluralistic culture. And firstly, we see they had confidence that people needed Jesus. They had confidence in the need for Jesus, that despite all the other religions on offer, there was a man who could only be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why they were called before the Sanhedrin. They had healed in the name of Jesus this man, and the city was going absolutely crazy over this news. And the Sanhedrin were concerned about what had happened and what they were preaching. But at the center of it, the disciples said, look, if you want to know who's healed this guy, it's Jesus. They knew, as we know today, that whatever pick-and-mix spirituality is open to any, there is nothing that fills the need that only Jesus can fill. There is nothing that can fill the need that only Jesus can can fill. Despite all the other religions, despite all the other philosophies, it was Jesus who healed this man. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Physical healing, spiritual healing, relational healing. That there's lots of good things in the world, but there's only one true solution to the problems of mankind, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus, in his own words, said, I am the bread of life. 
that I am the one who can truly satisfy you. You can stuff into your heart and your life lots of good things, good exercise. You can look good. You can have great friends. You can meditate beautifully. You can do good in society. But what you'll find is they aren't the bread of life. They won't leave you fully satisfied. Jesus later on said, Look, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the only one who can truly satisfy. I once heard a Japanese woman describe this in her own way. She said, look, it's like in Japan, we have two stomachs. We have one stomach for ordinary food, for meat and potatoes and that kind of thing. But we have another stomach, it seems like, that is for rice. And I can have all the other stuff and fill up my other stomach with all these things, but until I fill up with rice, I'm not truly satisfied. And it's like Jesus is saying, look, you kind of got two stomachs. There's lots of good things in life that you're hungry for and you can receive. But it's like unless you have this, you'll never be truly satisfied. I think if Jesus was talking to this lady, he would say, I am the rice of life. I'm the one thing that you absolutely have to need, have to have, to be truly satisfied. It's easy, isn't it, in a pluralistic context to look on the externals and go, everyone seems fine. But I've got the privilege, and maybe you do too, of having conversations not about the externals, but about the internals. And you realize that everyone is desperately still looking and searching for what will truly satisfy we run something called Alpha. We're going to run another one in the fall. We're very excited about it. It's kind of like a space for non-Christians or those who don't like church anymore to come without coming to church. It's Tuesday nights and we talk and we discuss the big ideas. It's safe. There's no preaching. There's no judgment. It's just a really good conversation about Jesus and the big questions of life. And I was in a group with an amazing group of people. None of them were Christians. And about week six, one person hadn't said anything and that was perfect because we want Alpha to be a safe place where you don't have to say anything. But week six, in the conversation, she said, okay, can I say something? I went, yes, of course you can. And she said, look, I've been coming and listening to all of what you've been saying for the last few weeks. And to be honest, you guys are the first Christians I've ever liked. Which I thought, hey, that's a good thing. But I've been listening to what you've been saying. And last week you said, if you'd like to know if Jesus is real, then just go home and pray, very ordinarily, just pray, if Jesus, if you're real, come show yourself to me. And she said, look, now I want the whole group to know, I've tried everything. And she listed all the different pick-and-mix spiritualities that she's tried. And she said, last week I went home and thought about what you said. And so I got up the next day and I thought, I'll pray that prayer. So she said, I just stood there and said, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And she said, in that moment, I felt an overwhelming love just flood over me. An overwhelming sense of love for me, that God loves me. And it was so beautiful. I can't stop praying that prayer. 
Every day I'm going, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. Because she doesn't know any other way to pray, which is beautiful. She says, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. She's a massage therapist. And she was saying, I'm actually massaging people going, oh, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And then actually with tears starting to build in her eyes as she said to the group, I want the group to know I've tried everything. And it's like I finally found what nothing else could truly bring. And it's Jesus. Sometimes it takes a while, doesn't it, for people to go through all the other options and then realize I'm still empty. One famous author was being interviewed and they asked him in the interview, what would you tell an 18-year version of you? And he said, I'd tell that person, when you finally get to the top and achieve everything that you ever wanted, there'll be nothing there. I thought, oh, how sad. But that is what happens when we try and stuff our lives with everything but Jesus, and we eventually wind up going, I'm still empty. Sometimes I say it's one of the four T's that wakes people up to realizing they're still dissatisfied. It could be tension. It could be trauma, tragedy, or transition. Eventually, I've had so many conversations of I was going on happily and I was enjoying this and that, but this hit me and I realized I don't have what it takes. I need help. And they turned to Jesus. Whatever this city is doing, whatever your friends seem to be doing, we love our friends and it's exciting to see all that they're trying, but at the end of the day, don't ever forget, don't ever lose confidence that there is a God-shaped hole in our hearts that only Jesus can fill. Because he is the way, the truth, and life. He is the bread of life. Secondly, have confidence in the future of Jesus. Have confidence in the future of Jesus. It's easy, isn't it, to look at our circumstance, to look at our city and go, oh my word, what's it going to be like in 20 years' time? Oh my word. And we start to panic. We start to think that, oh my, the glory days have gone. We were in the majority. We were the respected. We were the dominant voice in society. And we can panic that those things are gone thinking that Jesus needs to be in the majority, that Jesus needs to hold the popular opinion, that Jesus needs to be the dominant worldview for him to succeed. But that isn't the case. Look at these disciples. These disciples were being sent out by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations in much worse scenarios that we could find ourselves in. In the first century, no one had heard of Jesus. It's like, what are you talking about? Secondly, they were killing people who talked about Jesus. That doesn't bring great confidence into the future of a movement that anybody who declares the name Jesus is being killed. And they were the crazies of society. They were the fringe sect. Oh my word, we need to get rid of them. We need to command them not to speak. This is a highly difficult environment to make disciples of other people. And yet in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit had filled them and they had over 5,000 people come to know Jesus. We need to take confidence that it's okay to be in the minority. It's okay We don't need to be the majority. We don't need to be in power. In fact, Jesus never said, go make disciples by being in charge.
Dallas Willard, who was a Christian author and a professor of philosophy at USC just down the road, said this, The Christian gospel does not require cultural privilege or even social recognition in order to flourish. God's work is not disadvantaged by persecution, even to death, and much less by mere pluralism. As Christians, we stand now in the kingdom of the heavens, and it's always been true that the one, Jesus, who is in us, is greater than the one who is in the world. I think we're living in such an exciting time. Because it's been times of persecution, in times of minority, that the church is at its best. Because we lean into being filled with the Holy Spirit and see an outbreak of the kingdom of God. We don't need a panic. We can be confident that Jesus is in his sovereign throne and he's not panicking, but confident about the gospel and its future. Okay, thirdly, we can have confidence in the exclusivity of Jesus. We can have confidence and courage in the exclusivity of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, Peter says in verse 12, before a Judaistic court, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I don't know, but in LA, I think we'd want to say to Peter, Peter, shh, calm down. You're going to get in trouble. Because we're living in this pluralistic environment. And it, you know, Jesus said the same thing. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think so in LA, we'd kind of take Jesus to one side and say, Jesus, turn it down a bit. Don't be so exclusive. That's just going to come across as arrogant. It's just going to come across as prideful if you think you know the way. Jesus, simmer down. And of course, we feel that way, don't we? We feel that it's social suicide to be confident about the gospel and courageous about Jesus is the only way. And I actually think it's so easy to buy into the thought that is open-minded to think that all religions may lead to God. That it's arrogant to say that Jesus was right in his claim. And that's why, actually, Barna came out with a not surprising but concerning statistic about a year ago, pre-COVID, that said 50% of Christians under the age of 35 don't believe we should even try to convert others to Jesus. It's wrong to do so. I think it's this cultural world of it's intolerant and arrogant to try and say to someone, Actually, in all respect and in all love, I think you're wrong. I think Jesus is the truth. So how was Peter so confident? How was Peter so courageous to stand up in front of a Jewish religious court and say, you got it wrong. It's only by Jesus. Well, I think firstly and most importantly, Peter was just really logical. And Peter knew that actually, despite the claims of people, everyone's being exclusive. Everyone's being exclusive. That some are, it's not a matter of some are being exclusive and others aren't. He just knew that whatever opinion you hold, you're being exclusive in that opinion because you believe that's right and everyone else is wrong. It's just he was being honest about it. So, for example, let's go through it. Can I want you to feel no shame 
in being able to say, no, I think Jesus is true. And I think everyone else is kind of, in some ways, you're, onto a, you're, you're seeing some good things, but ultimately, I think you're wrong. So let's go through it. So athe- atheism, we know, is an, is an exclusive claim. I grew up in England where the predominant worldview was atheist, atheism. There is no God. And it was very clear, them towards me, yeah, we think you're wrong. And my friends every beer would say, I just think you're wrong, bro. There's no God. And I'd go, well, I love you. Let's get another beer. But I think you're wrong. I think there is. It was mutually exclusive. You couldn't believe both. It was a loving conversation between two different exclusive claims. Then Judaism, same thing. They believe in one God, the God of Yahweh, but not Jesus as God. That's a very clear exclusive claim. And so on and so forth. And then you come to LA and in our culture and in the streets and bars, people will go, oh man, all this exclusivism, it's so divisive. I'm not going to be exclusive. I want to be inclusive. I want to say that all religions are valid. All of us are onto something. But of course, in order to hold that view, you necessarily are saying that the other religions in their exclusivity are wrong. So you are just making another exclusive claim. You are saying that God is unknowable and all these other religions are wrong in trying to say this or that about God, that actually the only way to know God, who is fairly unknowable, he kind of doesn't mind us not knowing the specifics, that we're all just finding a bit of him, but to say that you have found God and know the full truth is wrong. The full truth is you can't know. In other words, I have an exclusive claim. Does that make sense? We all have exclusive claims. So really, the issue isn't arrogant or prideful to hold an exclusive claim. It's just reality. We all have exclusive claims. And when someone, which happens a lot, because I've got lots of great friends in this city who aren't Christians, they'll say to me, yeah, I just think you're wrong to be so exclusive. I'll say, dude, you kind of just claim to be exclusive in what you just said. Because you're saying I'm wrong, and you're right. You have a different view to God than me, and you're trying to convert me to your view. That's called evangelism. And you don't want me to do that, but you're doing it to me right now. You see that? The only difference is, of course, I admit to evangelism. And you're pretending you're not. And that's okay. I'm not, it's not a pejorative thing. It's just, let's be honest about it. And then we get to the really much better conversation, which is, well, who's right? What's the evidence that you're right? What's the evidence that I'm right? And this is where Christians can be super confident. Because when it comes to the evidence for Jesus being right, there's a whole stack. When it comes to pick and mix spirituality being right, I would suggest it's pretty thin. I also suggest that if you look at the claims, the life, the death, the resurrection, and all those evidence of the life of Jesus, it pretty stacks up. And so I think we can be confident, not arrogant. We can be courageous, not to put down other people, to say, look, I love you, mate. You've just got a distinct view of God. I'd love to know why you think God is like that. Because I don't see any evidence for that. And so I'm struggling to believe what you believe because I don't see any evidence for that. 
and you can have a great conversation. And if they ever say, well, what's the evidence for you thinking Jesus is God? Well, that's a great conversation, and I've got lots to say. We can be confident in exclusivity, because exclusivity is what everyone says, but we have evidence for our exclusive beliefs that actually stack up for millions and millions of people throughout church history. Okay, and then finally, as we come to land the plane, we can have confidence in the message of Jesus. Confidence in the message of Jesus. I love this. In verse 20, Peter just stands before these lawyers and these judges who are saying, will you just shut up? And Peter says, look, in verse 20, we can't help speak about what we've seen and heard. It's not, I have a duty to. It's not, Jesus told me to. It's, I can't help it. I can't stop. Because it's so good that it'll be really hard for me, just almost impossible, to not say anything at all. Have you ever been so excited about something that you just basically can't not tell people about it? You know, isn't that what Yelp is all about? Oh, the best burger, or whatever it is, right? But imagine that on a deeper level. Oh, my word. Look at Jesus. Look what he's done. See, every other religion is a system of self-salvation, trying to do something in order to please God, trying to actually perform by some meritocracy, to actually do, get in God's good books, whoever your definition of God is. But the great news that Peter had discovered is that salvation doesn't come from works. He says, salvation is found in Jesus. That we're not climbing a ladder of performance to get to God. Oh my word, in Jesus we discover God's come down the ladder to rescue us. That is not by merit, but by grace. That Jesus and God the Father don't look at us with disdain for how messed up we are, but empathy and sympathy and love, so much so that the Father says to the Son, go get them, rescue them. They will never find us by themselves. They can't fix the problems themselves, so let's rescue them. Let's do Jesus, let's do it by grace. And Jesus came and lived the life that we could never live and died the death on the cross for each and every one of us to take away the, the problems in this world so that he could give us salvation, give us healing, give us renewal for free. It cost him everything, but cost us nothing. This is what Peter and John said, I can't keep that quiet. I can't watch a world struggling under the guilt of religious performance when God has said, that's not who I am. That's not how you come to know me. You've come by one thing only, and that is repentance. Just say sorry, and I will pour my love and forgiveness all over you. This is why he said, Look, I can't stay silent. And in our city, do you know that when people think about Jesus, when they think about Christianity, they don't think about this good message. They have all the religious trappings that they then put onto Jesus. Time and time again, I say, hey, what's your view of Jesus? What's your view of Christianity? And it's far from the grace of Jesus. Common answers are things like, I keep hearing them. Yeah, you know, Jesus, I love Jesus. And if we follow his example, then I think I'm doing well and I'll get there. It's like, dude, that's the opposite of what Jesus came to say. Our city needs to hear the good news, not just more good advice on religious performance. And although our 
spirituality, our pick and mix religious society doesn't talk about performance and kind of self-salvation in this way. Bono from U2 puts it really good. Who knows this climate really well. He says this, look, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of all this spirituality. And yet, Along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep ship. I said ship. He didn't. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. He said, this is great news that our city needs to hear, that this karma, this kind of what you give out, will you'll return. This age-old philosophy of religion that is down to your performance, your energy, your thoughts, your projection, your, the secret of just visualizing good things, it's all the same. It's down to you. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to take that burden off you and I'll make it about me. I'll die for you so you can stop nailing yourself. That's why Tim Keller writes this. He said, I've always said to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe the gospel, they should want it to be true because it's such good news. This is the great news that we can't keep to ourselves. We can't stay quiet. And I thank God that we live in a country that has a freedom of speech a freedom where in a pluralistic society where there's a free market of different exclusive claims that we have the privilege and the right and the honor to present the case of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. With all love, with all humility, without browbeating people and to love and honor them in their own journeys, but we can say, have you found, have you heard of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. I'd love you just to close your eyes at home or in the room here. Because at the very end it said Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. That they could live out. That this message was real to them. It wasn't an intellectual thing. But being filled with the Spirit just simply means your faith comes alive. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He sets your faith on fire. And so as we worship, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill our hearts again with the reality of the good news of Jesus. That we're confident and courageous, loving and humble to those around us, but not diluting our confidence and our courage to say, I think we found the truth in Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's such good news. I can't not say it. So as we worship you, Jesus, come alive again in our hearts.
come alive again, we pray. Some of us, I sense, maybe you're a bit dry in your faith. That it's not alive. It's not great news. And I think as we worship, the Holy Spirit wants to set your heart on fire again. You see the beauty and the riches of what Jesus has done for us. The depth of pain for people who don't know Jesus, trapped in religious self-performance of whatever description that is for them. And they've never discovered the joy of grace. 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 So let's worship and have our hearts set on fire once again.